You have searched me and known me. You know my lying down and my rising up. Psalm 139. This is the most sustained meditation in Scripture, as far as I know, where the author, in this case David, marvels and reflects on his own identity as a human being made from God's hand. And he walks through this incredible detail of what it means to be made a human being. You hem me in behind and before. You know my lying down and my rising. Before a thought or a word is on my lip, behold, Lord, you know all. All the days of my life, behold, were written in a book before there was yet one of them. Such thoughts are too wonderful for me. I cannot attain to it. We're invited into this psalm with David to marvel, to praise, to reflect on what it means to be made by the hand of God, to be woven and crafted carefully and thoughtfully, to walk about on this earth with such glory, like Psalm 8 reflects. What is man that you have thought of him or elevated him? God has placed on us glory. There are two things that I want us to focus on in particular in Psalm 139 that we should draw our attention to or notice. And the first is the fact that God has made us. We were not accidental. I realize in the world of science we have to give some account for the fact that humans arose in this world in one way or another. But we may be confident of this, that the bodies and lives we're walking around in are not accidental. They are purposeful. They are good. They are of design and love and craftsmanship and artistry. God makes good things well. When he finished on the sixth day of creation, he looked out on all he had made and said, Behold, very good. There is for us in this moment to be reminded of the utter goodness that surpasses our imagination, as David tells us. Such thoughts are too high for me, I cannot attain it. You, each of you, are a beautiful and wonderful work of God's handiwork. It is not always the way we think of ourselves. We think of ourselves often with shame or regret, or dislike, and David brings us back again into the truth about ourselves that God made us. Woven in our mother's womb, there is design and goodness and purpose. Thought for each day that we would walk, for each thought we would have. Each of us different in our own unique way. What a mind would come up with such a marvelous idea, and that we would share in it and be conscious of it. This raises us above the animals, doesn't it? That we can look and think, look at who I am. That I've been made like this to know that God has crafted me. It is a wonderful thought. It should lead us at least briefly for a moment to think on this rapid rise in culture of identity culture. This um, instinct and desire to put a label or a name on yourself. And we should all be fully aware that very much of identity culture is meant to respond to and resist oppression 
and racism and discrimination. There's something identity culture is trying to get at that is good. But what it aims for, it overreaches. And that is to give us true identity. That I could take a label or a term or an acronym and put it on myself and think that that gave me richness of life and meaning. Parents especially, so many children in here in our schools are encouraged, as young people are, to get a label. And the more novel and the newer, the better. Do you see what a vain race this is? To find my identity in a label, in a term given to me by a shifting and changing culture. We must take up the work of protecting the weak, but not allow that to redefine our humanity. Sarah, and if I could borrow this conversation we had last week about our creation as human beings, I think what David would have us say is to remember that in all of this, we are ultimately the work of God's hands. We could all sit here today and wish we were taller and had smaller feet or thicker hair or warmer hands or were more intelligent or kinder or faster. Right? How quickly in our culture we begin to envy and not do the very thing that David instructs us to do, to receive these lives with gratitude and contentment. This is made good. All the weaknesses, all the things that I'm ashamed of and the things I don't like, God looks on with great delight. Gosh, we need to be reminded of that, don't we? I'm a work of goodness, of purity, of devotion and design that surpasses my own thought. And second, not only are we made by God, but we are known by him. He knows my lying down, my rising up. He's acquainted with all my ways. My days, he's put in a book before there was one of them. He knows your life far better than you could ever imagine for yourself. You have a companion in life. We have this extraordinary crisis of loneliness in our world. This won't solve it entirely. But imagine if people knew, if you and I took to heart how deeply loved and known we are. God crafted us to know us. He likes us. For all the things we may not think we're likable, he delights. He loves to have fellowship with us. He loves for us to pray to him. He loves for us to come after him. He knows and is intimate with us. He speaks with us. He listens to us. He is near in a time of need. This should encourage us. It should be part of our gospel message to the world. There is one who knows you better than you know yourself. 18 verses David spends on this reflection. It's wonderful. I encouraged you in the church email this week to read it and to reflect on your goodness and on the goodness of God in you. He rids you of the sin so that you might be what he has designed for you. Finally, though, in verse 18, David turns for the conclusion to his psalm in two short parts, two short stanzas. And we don't read those today, and I fault our lectionary for not putting those in. They're protecting us from these words. Oh, God, that you would slay the wicked. I shouldn't say that in a Christian church, but it's there in Scripture for us to read. That you would put down men of bloodshed. 
for they take your name in vain, and do I not hate those who hate you? What do we do with words like that as Christians? I do think that in the church, those words have been transformed. And I'll say something about that in a minute, that we don't go about with Israel seeking the fall of other nations. But I don't actually think that's primarily what David is doing at this moment. Notice what he has done in giving us this long psalm of 18 verses of God's making of him and knowing of him. It ends with a moment of conscious awakening, of moral agency. If God made me good and for a purpose, and he sees me, all of a sudden I recognize that he has a purpose for me and I may not be keeping it. Almost uh, 30 years ago, a long time back, when Amy and I began parenting our children, we have this um, striking memory with a child who was barely one toddling across the room towards a television that was not turned on. And as the child walked, one of us said, do not touch the television. And the child, of course, walked to the television, slowly touch. Sorry to surprise you if you have young children that the heart of rebellion starts very early. And so some correction was applied at that moment. But also, even more, I wish I had known this at that time, that for children, they're in that moment that David has. It's a moral awakening. I'm an agent. My actions actually have a role in this world. Psychologists know that toddlers very often speak of themselves in the third person for some period of time. They call themselves by their name, not I or me. It's the process of the discovery of agency that I am responsible as a human being to the world around me. And I think that's exactly what David is doing in this moment. He's marveled that God has made him. His thoughts are too high for him. Oh, that you would slay the wicked. This is this Old Testament coded language for saying, I'm on your side. When David realizes that God sees everything in the world, he aligns himself with loyalty with God. How do we know that? Because he says, they take your name in vain. He doesn't name his enemies. It's vague language. And he doesn't take vengeance. He allows God to do it. Imprecations are strong, but they're not, I think, what we always think they are. David gives vengeance to the Lord. But the number one thing he is doing is making sure immediately in this awakening moment of conscience that I'm on the right side. And then he turns to his closing prayer. Remember those two words that opened the psalm. You have searched me, you have known me, my lying down, my rising. He comes back to these two verbs. Oh God, search me and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. That's moral awakening. He doesn't leave it just to God to do vengeance on the wicked. He says, oh God, help me get my conscience right. Help me know which way I am to walk, because our judgment and our conscience can be weak and corrupted and frail. And David knows as he closes his prayer to cry out for the one who made him to guide him. Teach me. Instruct me. I'm blinded to my own faults. 
I know you've made me for a good purpose. Get me back on that path. This is uh, the intersection I suggest to you with Matthew's gospel and with our reading in Amos. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's not a, a politically kind and welcome term today to tell people repent. The billboard on the side of the road as you drive, repent. But do you not see in this context that it is a word of grace? It's the same frame and the same word that Jesus offers to Simon and Andrew and James and John. Follow me. Repent is an invitation. I see that you have gone astray. I see that you are lost. Come. The welcome of repentance is he will gather us again and help us and put us on a new path. To repent is to turn to the one who made us again. Exactly as David does in the psalm and says, search me and know my heart, try me and know my anxious thoughts and lead me in the way everlasting. Throw down your nets and follow him. It does come at a cost. That's part of Matthew's point. I'm going to have to leave my profession. I'm going to have to leave something about the old way of life if I'm going to be a disciple of this one. But he knows what is good for me. And as he leads us, what a terrific image. It's not simply that we're following the word of God, but Jesus himself in the flesh, beckoning us. We have one's life to look at and follow. A life of love and of healing and of the cross and of resurrection. As we walk through this life, we have a vision to follow. We close, perhaps, by tying this to our reading in 1 Corinthians today. It struck me, I think I'd never heard it this way before, that Paul tells the church, in the name of Christ Jesus, be of one mind. That's a rebuke. He doesn't just say, be of one mind. He says, in the name of Christ Jesus, the one whom you believed in, who makes you one, who crafted you and died for you. Don't kid yourselves that if you say you follow him and then have divisions in your midst. Be of one mind and of one heart. It's remarkable, isn't it, after the high of Matthew 4 and the disciples following, these early churches are rent with division. Their pride will tear them apart. They'll rise up and oppose one another. That sin remains there. And so Paul corrects this church and invites them to be one again. Shouldn't we take David's prayer in a day like today And add to it this, search us and know our hearts and see if there be any grievous way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. I do think this is the message that Paul has in mind. He realizes that the word is looking on and if there is division of the church because Corinth is prideful and boastful and my church and my pastor and my denomination is better And he says the word will look on and not see the power of the cross and the wisdom of God. It is in your dying to self. It is in your efforts to be one in mind, to share your lives, to die to your own desires that the world will see Jesus. May we take those words today. Search me, search us and know our hearts. Test us and know our minds and lead us in the way everlasting.